Turn your Bibles to Judges 17. Judges 17. Kids, if your parents would like you to have a coloring sheet and you don't have one yet, there are two left on the chair back by the sound table. So if you need one of those, go ahead and grab one of those before we get started. Now, it's been a while. I believe it was back in early November, the last time we were in the book of Judges together. And so I want to remind us just briefly uh, that the book of Judges, most of it, uh, the part probably that's most familiar to us is a part that describes a, a cycle, this cycle of, of rest for the people in the land, idolatry, judgment, groaning, rescue, rest, idolatry, judgment, groaning, rescue, etc., etc. And God in this, in this cycle is repeatedly judging his people for their sin, for their unfaithfulness to him. And then, and then each time he is merciful and gracious and he rescues them from the judgment they deserve using judges. Now, last time we were together, we finished the story of Samson. Uh, and that time with Samson around the cycle, that was our last time around the cycle. So throughout the rest of the book, there is no cycle. In fact, and throughout the rest of the book, there are no judges and there actually are no oppressive enemies anymore. Okay, so it's a very different portion of the book. Now, I want you to imagine with me that I live in ancient Israel, near the end of the time of the judges, and I live up north in the city of Dan. Okay? And you have come to visit me. Okay? I've grown up in Dan, and so I, I know the city really well. And we're walking through the city, talking together, and you, you ask me, you say, what, what is that over there? And so you're pointing up the street at this structure that is clearly built to be a place of worship. And so I explain to you, yes, that, that is where we all worship the Lord. There's actually these really beautiful uh, silver carved images uh, that we use in our worship there for the Lord. It's, it's really amazing. Now, you're from down south. You're from the city of Shiloh, much farther south. That's the city where the, where the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant are located. And so you're kind of confused by this. Uh, and so your, your question is, really, carved images to worship the Lord? I didn't know that was you know, going on up here in the city of Dan. Okay? And so you're just confused. And so you ask the question, where did those images come from? Like, how did this all get built up here? And so I explained to you that actually it started years ago, years ago. It started years ago in the land of Ephraim, kind of back where, where you're from. And to be honest, it all started one day when this guy stole some silver from his own mother. So look at Judges chapter 17, verse 1. There was a man of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Micah. And he, Micah, said to his mother, the 1,100 pieces of silver that were taken from you, about which you uttered a curse, and also spoke it in my ears, behold, the silver is with me. I took it. And his mother said to him, blessed be my son by the Lord. Now, I'm not sure what you're envisioning when you read that, but but don't think of Micah as this young boy who's taken a few dollars out of his mom's purse, okay? Micah has his own house and his own adult children. So he's an, an adult man who stole money from his mother, who's probably elderly by this point, okay? And it wasn't just a few dollars. 
Later in the story, Micah is going to offer someone a yearly salary that includes 10 pieces of silver per year, which means that this theft could have covered that part of the salary for 110 years. Okay? This is a lot of money that he stole from his elderly mother. Okay? And kids, this is where your coloring sheet comes in, that big bag of money on there. This is what we're talking about, the bag that, that Micah stole. But now remember, Micah's mom doesn't know that her son was the one who took it. So she's upset about this. She announces a curse upon the thief, whoever he is, and Micah heard that curse. And so what does he do? He, he doesn't want to receive that curse. He wants to be blessed. He wants life to go well. And so he confesses to his mother that he's the thief. Okay. And so his mom blesses him. Verse 3. And he, Micah, restored the 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother. And his mother said, I dedicate the silver to the Lord from my hand for my son to make a carved image and a metal image. Now, therefore, I will restore it to you. So when he restored the money to his mother, his mother took 200 pieces of silver and gave it to the silversmith, who made it into a carved image and a metal image, and it was in the house of Micah. So Micah confesses to this crime, restores the silver to his mother, and what does she do with it? Well, most of it she keeps. She keeps 900 pieces of silver, but she gives 200 pieces of the silver to a silversmith to have him make a, a carved image and a metal image. And it's not exactly clear what, what was made, but whatever it was, she wanted it to be dedicated to the Lord for the good of her son, to be used in the worship of the Lord, and so she put it in Micah's house. So here we have at the beginning of our story, Micah's elderly mother is encouraging him toward false worship with carved images to worship the Lord. Verse 5. And the man Micah had a shrine and he made an ephod and household gods and ordained one of his sons who became his priest. So you see here, Micah has his, his own personal worship center. He's got an ephod, household gods. He's got his very own priest. And where did he get his priest? Did you catch that? He made his own, right? He dedicated his very own son to be his priest. So I hope this has you kind of already scratching your head. Like, what is going on? Okay. These are not foreigners. Micah and his mom are not, like they've come from somewhere else to live here, and so they brought these things with them. They are Israelites. Okay. But maybe, maybe Micah and his mom are like especially bad. Right? They're just like the bad people in the neighborhood where everyone, everyone else is better, but they're the only ones doing this. Okay. Look at verse 6. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So coming after the story we just read, does that sound like Micah and his mother are unique in Israel? No, it sounds like they are the norm. Okay? Step into any town in Israel, stop by any home, and you will find people like Micah and like his mother. Okay? Now there is one comment later in the story that makes me think this kind of a fully developed worship center was probably a little, a little unusual. But as far as people who think this way and act this way and worship this way, this is the norm for Israel at this time. Okay. And the text tells us that the reason for this was that there was no king in Israel. And so everyone just did whatever they wanted to, whatever they thought was right, and this is what you get when that happens. This is a, a good reminder that when left on our own to determine what is right and what is wrong, we will get it wrong. Okay. 
On our own, we do not come up with what honors God. Apart from his grace, our hearts are, are by nature bent away from him. And the good news is that God hasn't left us alone. He hasn't left us without direction in this life. He's given everyone his, a, a conscience, and he's given everyone the testimony, the witness of his creation, and he's given his people his word so we can know what is right in God's eyes. Now, back to the story. We know how these images got into Micah's house, but we're down here in Ephraim. Okay, how did, we, how did these get up to the city of Dan, where I live, remember? Okay. All right, let's look at verse 7. Now, there was a young man of Bethlehem in Judah, of the family of Judah, who was a Levite, and he sojourned there. And the man departed from the town of Bethlehem in Judah to sojourn where he could find a place. And as he journeyed, he came to the hill country of Ephraim, to the house of Micah. So when we started reading verse 7, I don't know how you felt when that story started, but maybe you felt like, okay, new story, okay? New characters, new people, uh, and it feels like that. We meet this nameless young Levite, an Israelite from the tribe of Levi, but he's a, he's a sojourner, and he's been living in Bethlehem of Judah. Okay, now maybe you remember Maybe you don't, I don't know, from our series in Joshua. But the tribe of Levi was not assigned a, a portion of land like the rest of the tribes were. Okay? Their inheritance was their service to the Lord and to Israel at the temple. But with that inheritance, they were received 48 cities scattered all throughout the land of Israel. Okay? And so this young man apparently has not been living in one of those 48 cities most recently, he's been living in Bethlehem in Judah's land. And it does describe him as being of the tribe of Judah, which is a little confusing. But his sojourning to find a place has brought him to Ephraim, to the house of Micah. You know, the, the guy who stole all that money from his elderly mother, right? Verse 9. And Micah said to him, to the Levite, where do you come from? And he said to him, I am a Levite of Bethlehem in Judah, and I'm going to sojourn where I may find a place. And this is really good news for Micah. Verse 10. And Micah said to him, stay with me or, or sojourn with me and, and be to me a father and a priest and I will give you 10 pieces of silver a year and a suit of clothes and your living. And the Levite went in. Verse 12. Verse 12. And Micah ordained the Levite and the young man became his priest and was in the house of Micah. Now remember, before this day, who was Micah's priest? His son, right? He had made his son his priest. So what happened to his son? We don't know. Probably demoted, okay? So why, why does Micah prefer this nameless Levite to be his priest? Probably over his son, okay? Why do we know? I mean, excuse me, why is, that, why is that the case? And we know the answer to that. Look at verse 13. Okay, why does he prefer this Levite? 13. Then Micah said, now I know that the Lord will prosper me because I have a Levite as priest. Now look at those words. To whom did Micah say those words? Who did he say them to? They sound like words he said to himself, okay, which is always really helpful when the narrator lets you know how a character thinks. You see, Micah prefers a priest from the tribe of Levi because it makes him more confident that God will bless him. Why? 
Why is he more confident that God will bless him if he has a priest from the house of the tribe of Levi? Well, most likely, Micah knows enough of the law of God to know that God's priests were supposed to come from the tribe of Levi. But for Micah, that requirement that God laid down is really just a a best-case scenario. If you can get a Levitical priest, great. But if not, anyone will do. God's word for Micah is, is not definitive. He obeys the best he can, when he can, and believes that will be good enough for God. And the second thing we learn from Micah's thoughts is that Micah believes that if he has this one or some legitimate component to his worship, like a, like a Levitical priest, if he has some right thing, then God is more likely to bless him despite all of the wrong things he is doing. This is reminding me as I was studying this week of what Brian taught us last week from Jeremiah, where Israel believed that the, they believed the lie that there is, there is some religious place or practice that can save us. Israel dismissed Jeremiah's message of, of coming judgment because they had what? They had the temple of the Lord. And no doubt if you confronted Micah with the law and said, hey, look at, look at this. It says no carved images, no idolatry. He probably would have said, yeah, I guess so, but I have a Levite. Okay, I've got a Levite. Like Israel in the days of Jeremiah, Micah is deceived because there is no religious place or practice that can save us from the judgment our sin deserves. Now, back to the story. Look at chapter 18, verse 1. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Okay, now that's the second time we have heard those words. Last time in chapter 17, we heard them this way. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. This is becoming a a theme. Okay, we're going to see this even more throughout the rest of the book, and it's not, not a good one. Okay, verse 1 again. In those days, there was no king in Israel. And in those days, the tribe of the people of Dan was seeking for itself an inheritance to dwell in. For until then, no inheritance among the tribes of Israel had fallen to them. All right, so as we start this story, you'll notice there's no Micah. There's no young Levite. But the tribe of Dan does kind of remind us of the young Levites. Okay? After all, both the Levite and the tribe of Dan are, are looking for a place. Okay, they're both after one. Now, we're not told why the Levite was looking for a place uh, when he had 48 cities to choose from, so to speak. But for the tribe of Dan, we know exactly what happened. Okay? They actually were assigned a piece of land right there next to Ephraim. Okay? But if you read back in Judges chapter 1, you'll see that they failed to fully drive out the inhabitants of that piece of land. And in Judges chapter 1, any time that someone fails to drive out the inhabitants of the land, it is always because of unfaithfulness. And so here they are, at the end of the book of Judges, still looking to fully secure a place that is sufficient for their tribe. Verse 2. So the people of Dan sent five able men from the whole number of their tribe, from Zorah and from Eshtal, to spy out the land and to explore it. And they said to them, go and explore the land. And they came to the hill country of Ephraim, to the house of Micah, and lodged there. Now, does that kind of surprise you? What house do these spies come to on their journey? 
Remember, Micah's house is in Ephraim, so apparently this is not a new story at all. We are, this is all kind of intertwined. The Levite, Micah, the, the Danites, tribe of Dan, it's all connected. Okay? Verse 3. When they were by the house of Micah, they recognized the voice of the young Levite. And they turned aside and said to him, Who brought you here? What are you doing in this place? What is, what is your business here? Okay? This is incredible. The spies know this young Levite well enough to recognize his voice. And they're like, hey, what's up, man? What is going on? Like, what are you doing here in Ephraim? How's it going? Verse 4. And he, the Levite, said to them, this is how Micah dealt with me. He has hired me, and I've become his priest. And this is great news for the day-night spies because they could use a priest right now, right? They need to know what God thinks of their mission. They want to know if it'll be successful. Verse 5. And they said to him, inquire of God, please, that we may know whether the journey on which we are setting out will succeed. And the priest said to them, go in peace. The journey on which you go is under the eye of the Lord. So the spies are like, what? You're a priest? No way. Hey, can you ask God about our mission that we're going on and let us know whether he's for it or not? And so he agrees, tells them their mission is under the eye of the Lord, which is pretty ambiguous, but they take it as a really good sign, and so they're encouraged and excited. Verse 7. Then the five men departed and came to Laish and saw the people who were there, how they lived in security after the manner of the Sidonians, quiet and unsuspecting, lacking nothing that is in the earth and possessing wealth, and how they were far from the Sidonians and had no dealings with anyone. So in other words... The people of Laish, way up north there, they were prosperous, they were peaceful, and they were unprotected. They were so vulnerable. They were the perfect place for the tribe of Dan. So the spies, they returned back to the tribe, to the people of Dan with their report, and, and it was a lot different than the report that the spies brought back to Moses and the people, which, which Brian read earlier. Look at verse 9. And they, the spies, said, Arise, and let us go up against them, for we have seen the land, and behold, it is very good. And will you do nothing? Do not be slow to go, to enter in and possess the land. And as soon as you go, you will come to an unsuspecting people. The land is spacious, for God has given it into your hands, a place where there is no lack of anything that is in the earth. We found the perfect place, the spies say. The land is amazing, it's prosperous. The people, they are so unsuspecting. It is clear that God has given us this opportunity. Verse 11. So the 600 men of the tribe of Dan, armed with weapons of war, set out from Zorah and Eshtol. Verse 13. Verse 13. And they passed on from there to the hill country of Ephraim and came to the house of Micah. So no surprise, the Danite soldiers take the same route that the spies had taken. And where do they stop? The same place everyone stops, Micah's house. Okay, verse 14. Then the five men, these are the spies, who had gone to scout out the country of Laish, said to their brothers, Do you know that in these houses there are an ephod, household gods, a carved image, and a metal image? Therefore, consider what you will do. Verse 16. Now the 600 men of the Danites, armed with their weapons of war, stood by the entrance of the gate. And when these, the five spies, went into Micah's house and took the carved image, the ephod and the household gods, 
and the metal image, the priest, that's the young Levite, the priest said to them, what are you doing? Okay. All right, so there are, there are 600 soldiers armed to the teeth standing outside, out front of Micah's house. Okay. I doubt that many of us, if any of us, have ever seen 50 people standing in front of our house. Has anyone ever seen 50 people standing in front of your house? Okay, probably not. Imagine 600 soldiers armed and ready for battle standing in the road out front of your house. And then imagine if some of those soldiers are going in and out, okay, carrying away your personal worship center. Okay? Now, Micah doesn't seem to have heard about this yet, uh, what's going on, but, but his Levite, his priest, is kind of watching these men go in and out, watching all the stuff he cares about go by, and he's like, what are you doing? He, he's upset because they are, they are gutting his worship center. If they take it all away, how will he keep serving as a priest? Priest of what? There will be nothing left. He needs these things. Verse 18. And they said to him, keep quiet. Put your hand on your mouth and come with us. And be to us a father and a priest. Is it better for you to be a priest to the house of one man or to be priest to a tribe and a clan in Israel. Hey, okay, to this point, the Levite has been just furious that this is happening. But now, not so much. This situation is about to turn out for his benefit. This is his chance to climb the priestly ladder. The soldiers ask him, do you want to be a priest for Micah, one guy, or a priest for our whole tribe? To which the Levite says, good point. All right? And so he's not upset anymore. He'll be a priest for whoever will pay him the most money. Verse 20, and the priest's heart was glad. He took the ephod and the household gods and the carved image, and he went along with the people. So now finally, Micah hears about what's going on. I don't know where he was out in the fields. I don't know. But he finally hears about this. Verse 22, when they, that's the day-night soldiers, had gone a distance from the home of Micah, the men who were in the houses near Micah's house were called out. And they overtook the people of Dan. So Dan, uh, Micah must have put together some kind of a posse. Okay? Verse 23. And they shouted to the people of Dan, who turned around and said to Micah, What is the matter with you, that you come at us with such a company? Verse 24. And he, Micah, said, You take away my gods that I made, and the priest, and go away, and what have I left? How then do you ask me, What is the matter with you? You've taken the most important things I have. Verse 25. And the people of Dan said to him, Do not let your voice be heard among us, lest angry fellows fall upon you and you lose your life with the lives of your household. This is what's called a threat. <laughs> Micah, you keep talking like this, and some of these soldiers right here might get angry. And some of those big angry soldiers might end up killing you and your household. Be quiet and go home. Verse 26, then the people of Dan went their way, and, then, and when Micah saw that they were too strong for him, he turned and went back to his home. Now, I hope you don't feel bad for Micah. Okay? Remember, this is the guy who stole all that money from his mother, and it's because of that theft that these images of worship even exist at all. And now, Micah gets a chance to know what it feels like to be on the other side of a theft, to be the one who has lost. So don't, don't feel bad for him at all. This is really good for him. Verse 27. Verse 27. But the people of Dan took what Micah had made 
and the priests who belonged to him. And they came to Laish, to a people quiet and unsuspecting, and struck them with the edge of the sword and burned the city with fire. And there was no deliverer because it was far from Sidon, and they had no dealings with anyone. It was in the valley that belonged to Beth Rehob. Then they rebuilt the city and lived in it, and they named the city Dan. Now, don't you feel bad for Laish? Don't you feel bad for them? They are Canaanites, but the narrator describes them in such a way that makes us feel bad that they've been destroyed. Let me ask you, were we supposed to feel bad for Jericho when Israel destroyed them at the beginning of Joshua? No. But Laish is different. This time, God's people, the tribe of Dan, are fighting a city that God had not promised to them. Dan had failed to conquer their, their assigned land because they didn't fight in faith toward God. But now they've found a city that is so defenseless, they don't even need God to win. At Jericho, we were amazed at the Lord's power, but at Laish, which became Dan, we are amazed at Dan's brutal strength. Dan had failed to secure a place through obedience, and so instead they secure a place through their own strength, all while thinking that they had God on their side because they had a Levite and some images that were made to worship him. Verse 30. And the people of Dan set up the carved image for themselves, and Jonathan, the son of Gershom, son of Moses, and his sons were priests of the tribe of the Danites until the day of the captivity of the land. So they set up Micah's carved image that he made as long as the house of God was in Shiloh. Now there's a lot that we could observe here in these last two verses, but did you catch the thing that he finally tells us? All this time, we maybe should have assumed that the narrator didn't know the Levite's name. He's never given it to us. But in fact, the narrator knows the name and has waited till the very end of the story to tell us who this priest is, most likely for the, the shock value of it. Now, there is some debate about the name of his ancestor, but it is very likely that this young Levite is Jonathan from the, li from the line of Moses. And if so, then this is a, a tragic indicator of the extent to which idolatry has corrupted Israel's worship. Of all the families in Israel, which family would you expect to be the last one to turn from Yahweh to idols? One would think it would be Moses' family, and yet here we are with Moses' family leading false worship in Israel. Now, what do we do with this story? Okay, I've, I've explained to you why that worship center is on the street in the city of Dan. Let me ask you this, does that story make you want to move from Shiloh, where the Ark of the Covenant is and the tabernacle is, does it make you want to move from Shiloh to Dan, where I live? I, I would say no. This, this backstory for the worship center at Dan, I think, would discourage anyone from joining the worship there. Like I said, it all started when a guy stole a bunch of money from his elderly mother. So this story, I think, reminds us of just the, the foolishness of idolatry. This story is embarrassing, quite honest, honestly. And as the final verses of this chapter reveal, that the worship at this worship center was not able to prevent that city from being taken into captivity. So I doubt you'll be making any plans anytime soon to move from Shiloh to Dan, where I am. Now, as always, we want to finish the story 
by asking the question, where is God in the story? Whenever you're reading, especially a narrative, this is a great question for you to ask to help yourself. What is God doing? Where is he? If you look back over the story, go ahead and do that. Look down there. Find something that God did. Something that the narrator says he did. And you won't find anything. In this entire story, God never does anything. What I mean by that is the narrator never attributes any action to God. Now, remember, I didn't say that God is never mentioned. In fact, the characters of the story mention God a lot. Uh, Everyone is concerned about the worship of the Lord. And yet, even though everyone is all about worshiping Yahweh, I hope that we're all very uncomfortable with their worship. I hope we see how it clearly goes against all that God has said in his law. Okay? What makes us so uncomfortable with this? Okay? The answer to that is really easy because the narrator tells us what's going on. Remember, he told us that everyone has been doing what is right in their own eyes. Everyone's been doing exactly what they want to do. So in this story, it is specifically worship that that is applied to. When it comes to worshiping the Lord in, in Judges 17 and 18, everyone does just whatever they want to worship the Lord. So everyone in this story is, is concerned about worshiping the Lord, but it's clear that worshiping the Lord is not the greatest concern that they have. What is the greatest concern of each person in this story? Think about Micah's mother. She wanted the Lord to bless her thieving son, and so she dedicated idols or silver made into images to be used in the worship of the Lord so that God would bless her son. Micah wanted the Lord to bless him, and so he confessed his theft and welcomed these images into his personal worship center, complete with an ephod and household gods. He even hired that Levite uh, so that his worship would be led by the kind of priest that, that God preferred to make sure he was really getting God's blessing. And then there's the young Levite. He wanted power and money. And so he took a job as as a priest from Micah, but he is ready to leave and go lead worship for whoever will pay him more. And finally, there's the tribe of Dan. They want easy land, easy prosperity. And this Levite, with his statement that God is watching over their mission, he leads them to think that they can worship God, disobey God, and receive his blessing all at the same time. And so everyone is concerned about worshiping the Lord. But their greatest concern in every case is their own self-interest, their own fortune. Worshiping the Lord was just a means to get what they wanted. But the self-interested worshiper is not really worshiping the Lord. Self-interested worship is self-worship. It is worship that is about me. And the problem of self-interested worship is not unique to Israel in this age or this era. Sometimes... We worship the Lord for our own self-interest. Perhaps we have come to church this morning because we've got a really important business meeting on Wednesday, and we really need God to bless this meeting and make it go well. And so we're here to worship for our benefit. Or perhaps the self-interest of our worship is evident in our frustration that Phil doesn't choose the song I want to sing. We cannot worship the Lord when the church is not exactly the way I want it to be. Or perhaps we we serve in various ways because we we love praise from others when they notice how much we're doing for the Lord. Our worship worship in service is for our own glory. 
Or perhaps our, our self-interested worship is in that we pick and choose when we will obey God, depending upon whether we can see exactly how this is going to benefit us. But self-interested worship, again, is, is self-worship, and we share this problem with Israel. But remember, in Judges 17, the narrator was painfully clear about the problem in Israel. Everyone was doing right in their own eyes. But thankfully, the narrator was also just as painfully clear about the solution. He said, in those days, there was no what? There was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So as a narrator sees it under the inspiration of the Lord, what is the solution to Israel's problem of living whatever way they want to? What is the solution? It is a king. God's people need a king, but not just any king. As we've already seen in Judges, two people try to kind of be king, right? We had Gideon and his son Abimelech. Both of them aspired to be king, but neither of these men would have led, would have led Israel away from self-interested worship. They would have only made it worse as king. Now, David, David was a king who led the people away from self-interested worship. Remember, he actually brought uh, more centralization to worship. He put the kingdom and the tabernacle in Jerusalem. And then along came his son, Solomon, and Solomon builds the temple in Jerusalem. And yet, the self-interested worship of these kings meant that they could not lead Israel completely away from this problem either. David committed adultery and murder. Solomon married many foreign women and worshipped their false gods. Later, there was also King Josiah, who found the law of God in the temple, and he started massive religious reforms in Israel, in, 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 the, in the land. But his work was cut short because he died in battle, and then his son came to power and reversed all of his reforms. But then finally there came a king who could fully and completely raise his people out of the chaos of their self-interested worship completely. This king from the line of David was born in Bethlehem. God came in human flesh to save his people from their sins. He lived a perfect life, always obeying his father, gave up his life on the cross to suffer the punishment that our sins deserved and was raised from the dead. And so God has highly exalted this king and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and so that every tongue should confess that Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The government shall be on his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end on the throne of his father David, and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. That is the kind of king who is going to rescue Israel from the chaos of their self-interested worship. And this king welcomes into his kingdom everyone who will turn from their sins, from self-interested worship, and trust him and submit to his wonderful rule. And not only does King Jesus rescue people from self-interested worship by, by dying himself for our sin. But his death and resurrection become the ground for our confidence in God's blessing. Do you remember how excited Micah was when he got a Levite priest? It was the greatest day. Because now he knew that the Lord would prosper him. 
And so when the soldiers took away his priest, you can imagine that Micah is just devastated. He even said, I have, I have nothing left. He has lost his reason to be confident of God's blessing. Someone has stolen it and had taken it away. But unlike Micah, our confidence of God's blessing, far greater blessings than Micah was thinking, our confidence that God is for us do not, does not rest on the rituals of our worship or on the faithfulness of our obedience. Micah's confidence soared because he had a Levite as his priest. But we have a far better priest in the resurrected Christ. Our hope of God's blessing now and forever is in Christ alone. And, and no one can steal that away like they did from Micah. And so today, in response to these chapters, my hope is that we will praise our King, the resurrected Christ, for how he has saved us from a heart that seeks our glory, our blessing, our enrichment over his worship, over his glory. As we saw today, the end of, of that kind of a heart is, is judgment. And yet until he returns, we, we are still going to battle the, the pull to seek our own glory. And so wherever his spirit has exposed in your heart today, the kind of self-interested worship that we saw and talked about, I hope that we will repent of that this morning, that we will worship our king for no other reason than that he is glorious and that for his glory he has rescued us. And finally, my hope is that we will thank our king, that we can rest from the relentless pursuit that we saw in the story today, this relentless, chaotic pursuit of our own self-interest. We never need to face the anxiety that Micah felt when his worship center was gutted. Our king has committed himself to his people, and nothing is able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this story. It is not fun to read through stories where people are unfaithful to you, who do not bring glory to you by the way that they treat you, by the way they worship you. And yet we have been reminded of many important things today. Lord, thank you for preserving this story in your word for our benefit. We pray that you would guard our hearts from the kind of self-interested worship that we saw in this story. I pray that as we open your word each day that you would help us to see how glorious, again and again, how glorious Jesus is, how kind you are to sinners, and that we would worship you for your grace and mercy toward us. Lord, we thank you for how Jesus has been raised and is our priest today. Thank you that we have every reason to be confident that we have been reconciled to you and that you hear our prayers and that you are for us because Jesus is alive and he is our priest. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.